Hello everybody and welcome to the History Voyager. My name is Benjamin Kitchings. As always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very, very much for listening to mine. This is episode 66 of the History Voyager. This was a fascinating podcast with a basically a master's degree student who's working on a master's in public history named Randy Utz. Randy is also a left-wing activist. Now, if you follow me, the evolution of this podcast, you will know that I've gone from a deep dive history podcast into the Spanish flu to now where I'm interviewing people about 2020 and the world around us. In doing that, I feel obligated to interview people who are protesting in the streets about things they do not like about 2020. And not just about 2020, but about American society and the past, etc. And listen, I'm not just wanting to hear from the left side of the equation. I want to hear from the right side of the equation too. So if you're willing to come on the History Voyager and talk to me about your views, then that's fine. Um, I will say that I want to keep it civil. Um, but anyway, so this is Randy Utz. The thing about him that I thought was so interesting was we got into a lot of stuff. We got into where he thinks pop culture is going and also into how uh, certain Congress people, one in particular, uh, engage the basically the youth of America. And, you know, he did talk about uh, civic engagement. And, and certainly I think protesting is, is civic in- engagement. In fact, arguably, our country was founded, at least partially, because, because of protesting. Um, anyway, and the thing that I'm learning about 2020 is that this pandemic has spread into so many other areas. There's been so many areas that have sort of rippled uh, out from this pandemic. And one is that people are literally starting to use social media as a way to coordinate and as a way to talk to each other about uh, grievances they have in society. And I just found this podcast uh, so interesting. And I certainly hope you will too. And again, like I've said, um, if you're willing to come on and talk to me about your views about things while I'm still doing this part of the podcast, I'm perfectly willing to have you. And I'll put the email in the description um, and you can contact me if you so desire. The only thing I, I request is that we make it a civil discussion. Okay. And with that in mind, uh, this is uh, Randy Utz. Uh, enjoy, everybody. I'm here with Randy Utz um, on the History Voyager. And he's somebody I follow on Twitter. And he he's just a, strikes me as a very interesting person. Now, you're a college student. Do I have that right? Yeah, uh, I am 
in I'm about to finish my master's degree. In what? Uh, public history, and I have a bachelor's in European history. Wow. Cool. So we can talk about I have that in common with you, too. Um, all right. Where do you go to school, if you don't mind asking? Uh, California State University, East Bay. Oh, cool. Cool. So tell me, uh, Randy, um, what drew you to public um, history? Um, well, I mean, first off, I just have a general love of history, uh, especially ancient history. Um, so I spend a lot of time reading and uh, studying like Roman history and stuff like that. Um, what drew me to public history is I just like to tell fun history stories, you know, um, to me, especially in 2020, when we live in the age of the internet and constant like uh, social media presence and stuff like there's so many fun, unique opportunities to get into history, such as podcasting, that uh, just doing history for academics is unappealing for me. So I would like to bring stories that, you know, maybe people hadn't heard of um, to a, a wider audience. Yeah. One of the things I'm doing with my podcast, actually, is I'm, I'm creating kind of a primary, uh, you, you know what this is, like a primary history document. Yeah, 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 People like you and other people um, to talk about 2020 and just the reality of the situation, the reality of the world around them. Um, so where is – basically, where is the field of history right now is uh, top rail versus bottom rail, uh, things like that, like social history, et cetera? I mean, right, right now you're really starting – like. So in the late 90s, early 2000s, you started to see this shift towards a more uh, bottom-up approach to history. Um, you started getting histories of, uh, like, you started seeing people focusing on marginalized groups and stuff like that. And so right now, uh, history, the, like, the field itself is starting to reap the benefits of that. So we're starting to get a, under, a better understanding of what, of, you know, a a categorization like the Atlantic world, what that really means. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we're starting to see, like I said, we're starting to get a lot more bottom-up uh, stories, and uh, be, we're, we're now able to apply them in ways that we weren't before to make stuff, uh, to, to, to make history make more sense. Yeah. Um, and then also there's a lot going on in, like, um, studies on climate change. So basically every field that I have touched on in my college education right now is has something to uh, has some part and some people focusing on well what did the climate look like in that time. So um a good example of this is you know the the question to why did the western roman empire fall um it it has dozens and dozens of theories. I think I uh, when I was researching it, it has over 200 doc documented individual theories on why it fell. Well in the last four or five years, um, they've added another theory, and that's climate change and the, right. and, pandem and pandemic disease. Um, so, you know, Justinian's like, plague or the plague of Justinian. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, and then uh, there was two other successive uh, waves of plague that also kept sapping the manpower. And so we're, we're, we're starting to get a lot of that information back, too, and now you're getting people applying that to the world around us because I think especially in 2020, we can all understand the effects that uh, climate change-induced natural disasters and pandemic diseases has on people. One of the things that, like, I wonder about later is 
like when we go back and and look at society like in 2025 like say we're in 2030 and we look at 2025 and we say well 2025 was totally different from 2019 because 2019 is before the pandemic and yeah i mean i i definitely i definitely think that this is the type of event that we think of like uh society before and after um and and it's going to be a bunch of small subtle things too it's not just going to be like this big we think society has changed it's going to be very small stuff too uh my grandparents were notorious food hoarders because they grew up during the depression so they constantly had expired food in their uh, in their cabinets and stuff like that because they just couldn't throw anything away and so i i think we'll see something similar with people especially young people right now in toilet paper where i think you know in 20 in, 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 in 2030 Every time there's uh, some type of political event or, uh, you know, a, a pandemic or anything like that, the very first thing we'll see is a run on toilet paper. And so I think I, I think we'll see a lot of subtle changes as well. Um, like, I don't think masks are going away anytime soon, even after we get a vaccine. Um, I think people will I, – I, I think – people will start doing a lot more outdoor hobbies because they've had to pick them up this year. You know, it's going to be little, it's going to be little stuff like that too. I think honestly, like I think the the biggest difference we're going to see is like, what if, okay. Like what if true enough, most people who get this disease do not die from like the initial contact of it. True enough. Okay. But what if you end up with heart problems and clotting problems? And, and what if there's a lot of those people, right? Yeah, um, I, I, I totally agree. Uh, me and one of my professors and uh, co-authors, uh, we, were talk- we, we, we were talking about that exact thing the other day, except for we were talking about we wondered what the people who survived, you know, like, what kind of treatment and care did people who survived stuff like the Justinian plague get? Like, what what was their quality of life in the decades following the pandemic? And once we started digging into that question, it, it, you start to get a really scary uh, look at what we might be in for for the next, you know, five or ten years. Or 20 or 30. Yeah. Well, since you, too, have studied the fall of the Roman Empire, and I've studied it mainly through podcasting, or mainly through listening to podcasts, but since you've studied formally the fall of the Roman Empire, here's a question I have for you. Um, do you see this plague, the COVID, as a stressor on our American country that we can overcome or not? First, um, that's the first part. Uh, that's. I mean, it, it, yes, it's obviously a stressor, a stressor on our society. Um, I think it's important to keep in mind uh, – like comparisons to, between Rome and America fall apart very quickly, um, but it, it it is important to keep in mind that it didn't take just one pandemic to bring down the Roman Empire, and it wasn't just the pandemics alone. Um, and so, it wasn't even I mean it was over centuries basically. Yes, yes, um, <laughs> and you know, and if. I like to think that if we are looking at a period, like remember Rome transitioned from a republic to an empire and then still lasted for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years after that. Um, I don't know that the American, you know, republic um, 
is going to fall in a similar method. You know what I mean? Um, so, so, so it's, it's hard to compare the two, but I do definitely think that this is going to be a stressor that we're feeling the effects of for, you know, years and decades to come. Um, on stuff like disability, our healthcare system, like people will emerge from this realizing, all right, now we have to do something, not even just about like, uh, universal healthcare or something, but reorganizing the way our hospitals are run and stuff like that. So that way we don't, and if we fail to rise to that occasion, then yeah, absolutely. This is the type of thing that brings empires down. I mean, one of the things that, so I have friends that are in the medical world. And one of the things that they always talk about is that it's weird how you'll have your elective surgeries until recently. Like, you had very few elective surgeries, right? But yep. at the same time, your your ICUs and stuff were slammed. <laughs> and it's just the juxtaposition there is crazy. Yep. And you have some doctors who haven't done anything for the last eight months. And then some doctors who haven't got to stop breathing or go see the or start stop stop working or go see their family in eight months, you know. Right, and then and, and, like you, oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Well, there was a guest on my podcast uh, way early, like way early. Hopefully, I'm still early in the podcast, but you know, in the in the beginning days of my podcast, there was a guy on the podcast, and he brought up a really good point, um, which I don't exactly remember. But his point was essentially that people were people in hospitals were were charging were like over inflating COVID numbers, and as he described it to me, it sounded like Medicare fraud. Like this sounded like garden variety Medicare fraud that just had a COVID flavor to it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> Look, the thing is, is in a for-profit healthcare system, you're going to get a lot of stuff like that. Um, I, I think it, I, I do think, and I've said this phrase a lot, so I'm sorry if I keep sounding like I'm repeating myself, but I do think it's important to keep in mind, uh, you know, a couple of factors. One, especially in the early days, we weren't quite sure what was going on. You know, we're still learning about this uh, this virus. So when someone died of congestive heart failure and you've seen – several people who have caught COVID in your hospital, you know, talking about back in March, you've seen several people with, you know, die from similar things who were uh, COVID positive. You're more likely to think that it was COVID related or, you know, there's also, yeah, maybe you died of a brain hemorrhage, but you also had COVID. So they marked it down as COVID because it's the safer option than saying you didn't die of COVID, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. like so, so, so there, there's certainly levels of. I mean, again, we live in a capitalist system that's built on exploitation and stuff like that. So, like, there's always going to be people trying to skim money. Um, I don't think that that is, condemns or invalidates uh, the COVID reporting. And I do think that there's probably also the human factor of you know people just make mistakes, especially in an early days of a pandemic when you've never dealt with something like that before. Well, I think you're right, but I think the main, like the main thing his story illustrated to me was how, how widespread Medicare fraud might actually be. Oh, like it oh might absolutely. Actually be. Yeah. And and, yeah. And, and 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 part of that, uh, part of that is the effort to undermine mm-hmm. and dismantle Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and all that over the years. Um, oversight has been removed from it. Uh, 
And so that, like, more, less opportunities have been created to help people, but more opportunities have been created for people to make money off of it. Um, so yeah, I, I would, right. I would probably guess it's probably pretty widespread, but I mean, so is fraud of all kinds, I'm assuming. Well, the thing, you might not be aware, the thing about Medicare is, like, all insurance companies in this country go off Medicare. So if yeah. Medicare, like, if Medicare decides this is a disease that we bill for, or this is a thing that we bill for, so all insurance companies then yep. decide to bill for that. So that's, that's more like what I was saying. Like yeah, I was yeah. And, um, insurance fraud, yeah. Yeah, it, 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 it's a very, I mean, it's pretty similar to the way textbook companies make money. Exactly. <laughs> they, they, all base, they all base it off of a, what a handful of states are doing. So if that state's legislature uh, is doing something shady and has some, like, deals with uh, certain textbook companies, the other states will follow suit. And uh, it's, it, it, again, it, I, it, all of this is a product of the fact that these industries, education, healthcare, uh, several, and several other industries aren't designed to help as many people as they can. They're designed to generate wealth. Much, much, yeah, they're designed to make money. Um, so talk to me about, um, this technological revolution in which we find ourselves, be it with Twitter and, yeah. US, how many 3D printers do you possess? Uh, I actually own two of them now. Uh, I own both a, uh, like one that prints with FDM, uh, plastic, uh, from a spool and melts it down, and then another that prints using UV resin. Um, and they're both really cool and really accessible, and I think that says a lot about what's going on right now. Um, especially like, again, 2020, we've talked about COVID a lot. 2020, we're learning that a lot of, what we do face-to-face can be done much more efficiently at home. Um, I think we're going to start seeing uh, Zoom classes like this more often, um, even for, you know, your average university student. Um, I think stuff like 3D printing, and uh, now we're starting to see, you know, augmented reality and virtual reality, uh, you know, seeing another little boom. The opportunities to use these two technologies to bring people history, um, to bring people uh, closer to these uh, people, you know, in the past who who are very much foreign to us, you know, no matter how much it reads like these people are just like us, it it would be hard for us to be dropped into one of these older societies. So with with these technologies, we can bring people closer to them. And to to me, that's the most exciting part about all of this. Um, It's it's, it's interesting. Oh, sorry. Just because you specifically mentioned Twitter, and that's where we met. On Twitter, I get to interact with historians and scientists and researchers in ways that was impossible for a student or even a history buff to do 20 years ago. You know, I sat here and had a conversation with Mary Beard, who is perhaps one of my favorite historians of my lifetime, on Twitter. And so we're so much – like. We are also connected now. It gives us new and exciting opportunities to connect people with the past too. What what I find like amazing is, and then I wanted to talk about what she talked about. How you know you can read they're just like us, but in a lot of ways they're not. What I find like totally amazing 
is like I can have a conversation. So I'm a big Winnipeg Jets fan, and I can have a conversation on Twitter with the the play-by-play announcer of the Winnipeg Jets, right? Or I can have, um, you know, or like I can have, um, I posted a blog and it went viral. A couple of entries from it went viral. You know, it was crazy. And that's just insane to me. But the thing you wanted, you talked about earlier about how people are different, that's actually, I had a professor in my college career who said, he talked about how in this country, you know, the tendency is to say we signed the Declaration of Independence or, or we signed the Constitution or, you know, we came through the Depression, right? We didn't do any of that, is what he would say. Yep. <laughs> like, nobody sitting in this room did any of that. Okay, so you can't say that. Yep. And yep. you see that in with the pandemic because, like, my, my grandparents came through the Depression. You know, yep. and I'm thinking, I'm thinking, you know, how would they react to a pandemic, right? How would they, this pandemic, you know, what would well, they, 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 they had to live through the state. Well, I mean, I know you did a bunch of episodes on it, so they lived through the influenza uh, pandemic if they lived through the Great Depression. And like, so like right. probably a lot like we are right now, only with less interconnection like can you imagine having to go through covid without having the internet and uh <laughs> food service deliveries and stuff like that like i couldn't put my i can't put myself in those shoes much less someone 2000 years ago you know you know what's funny like funny is the wrong way to say this but and i say this in my podcast actually there was a man that i knew an older fella that i knew through school who um he experienced the very early days of AIDS, before AIDS was even, before it even had a name. And um, the way he experienced it was people in his apartment complex started dying, right? And he didn't put two and two together enough to think, well, that's a plague or, or that's a, you know, a disease. He just thought the apartment complex was killing people. So he moved. I wonder if that's how we would think what COVID was if we didn't yeah, have the I mean, internet. And, yeah. You know, you, you, you think of diseases such as like malaria, which literally means bad air. And that's the way people used to think about that, this type of stuff up until we figured out the germ theory of disease, you know? Well, and some comedian I follow on Twitter made, made a really salient point. They said with the Supreme court decision, uh, you know, where you can't, you have to leave churches open. Um, his point was, you know, if you're going to be originalist about it, you have to go back to think the founding fathers did not know what disease was. You know what disease is and they don't. I mean, not even just the founding fathers, several, the deaths of several uh, American presidents, either while in office or after office, is attributed to, uh, like, bad water uh, sourcing and stuff like that. So, like, not even just the founding fathers, no one knew what disease was up until, you know. uh, Well, yeah, like like, the plague, so the plague uh, that hit before the Spanish flu hit, the big plague was called the Russian flu. And it wasn't even Russian. It was... um, Basically, it was Eurasian, just like Spanish flu was, or 
well, not Spanish flu, but like COVID was, it was Eurasian, right? Um, but they thought it was actually rats. They thought it was like little critters that were attacking people. Jeez. <laughs> you know, weird. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and to kind of like, yeah, that, that's what I'm trying, that, that's what I was trying to say earlier, where like, these people, we, especially, you know, when we're talking about ancients, you know, people who lived two, three thousand years ago, they, they read like us, you know, they, they fall in love, they have, they, they deal with a lot of the same issues, that type of stuff, but because of the progression of knowledge, you know, the, the way knowledge uh, has progressed over the, the centuries and millennia, it, it, we cannot quite understand what they were thinking at all times. And that's why the work of anthropologists and historians and stuff is so important to bring out to other people. Otherwise, they're left with Hollywood images of what these people looked like uh, and acted like and thought like, and you're left with someone who you think you might live next door with. Uh, next door to, but the, the truth of the matter is, these the, the, his, the history is a foreign place. You know, um, there That's isn't a good way to say it. You know, the, the, there isn't a society on Earth that looks like uh, Greece circa 700 BCE. You know, so we we need people to go out and bring the bring these stories to people. Um, we need historians, we need uh, anthropologists to not want to just be academics, but to want to be, um, I guess, ambassadors might be a good way to put it, to the past to help people connect with them because there are a lot of really important lessons to, to right. learn from, you know? Um, right. You, you know, we keep we, we have brought up the Great Depression uh, several times, but, you know, when you look around at uh, the economy in the 21st century and you start to see similar patterns, and now we have a pandemic. So what we need to do is we need to, you know, we could look back at America's response to that, to, to those events and use that as inspiration to push for similar uh, similar uh, progress now. So, you know, Medicare, Social Security, all that stuff arises out of the Great Depression after the Spanish flu, um, and it's a way to kind of pull America back from a, a, a collapsing economy. And, you know, we're probably going to need something similar to that in the next decade or so. That was a long think, spiel. <laughs> I think you're right, though. I mean, I, well, okay, here's – okay. I think you're either right that that's going to happen or I think that could end up breaking the country up. Yeah. I, I, I mean, and I totally, honestly. I, I totally agree. Honestly. Um, <laughs> Empires like this, they they never fall from external. Uh, like they're rarely. I'll never say that. I won't say they'll never fall from external sources, but it's typically internal sources. Even when you look at like, yeah, the Ottoman Empire lost World War One, and so that's why they got broken up, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire and that type of stuff. But really, they lost those wars because of internal problems that happened long before the wars were fought. So I agree. Um, if yeah. if, Ameri if America falls, it won't be because uh, we were conquered by the Chinese or the Russians or something like that. It'll be because we failed to properly respond to an immigration crisis or we failed to properly respond to a, a global health uh, emergency, you know? Actually, what I think it'll be is um, – I actually do. I think it'll be um, 
I think there's a there's starting to be uh, an information gap, a profound information gap, which is only going to get wider. And I really, really think that you're because you have now where I forget the statistic in front of me, but uh, it's not in front of me. I mean, but there's a statistic where most of your people live in like I think you know a few counties. Yeah, like, yeah. by far. And it's just like, I could really see it. I could really, really see, you know, we become a nation of city-states. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So, you know, there's always been, uh, throughout history, this gap between what goes on in the urban areas where most of the population lives uh, versus uh, what's happening out in rural areas. Um, at least since we started urbanizing. Uh, and so, like, oh, in, so, in a lot of ways, some of what we're seeing right now, you know, with the polarization and stuff, it's, it, it's what happens. Um, you go and you go, go and look at, uh, pre-revolutionary and during the revolution, uh, Russia. Um, there's a wide gap between the, uh, urban, uh, trade unionists and intellectuals and the peasant farm workers, you know? Um, I think we see something similar here. The, the the big difference is the media environment people exist in. You know, there, there's mm-hmm. a large there's a large gap between what is being said on right wing social media uh, and and just media in general and left wing and even centrist. Like there there, there are gaps between all three of these, and right. because of specific, and I'm trying not to get too political here, but because of the way specific uh, institutions and individual bad state actors have acted, um, the the project that, that some sections of American society have been working on have led to just this wide, wide gap between what someone like, say, my father thinks and what I think. Um, you know, and I, it's not my, just your standard generational gap. No, no, it's not at all, because the, the, there was a point in which I believed just like them. You know, um, I know plenty of people my age who uh, believed the opposite of what I believe now. And that had not, yeah, it was, had nothing to do with the age gap. It was, it was specifically all about where you get your information from. You know? what's, what's amazing to me, what's something that I... Before I started my podcast, so I would say I started this podcast. Well, I did. I started the podcast on March 14th, okay? And before I started the podcast, before I started really interacting with people on Facebook who weren't like my friends or anything like that, what I noticed, what what I what shocks me is that the young people younger than me have this amazing sort of, um, and I use amazing not in a positive way, but in a negative way, a very kind of a a nihilistic attitude towards uh, politics in general. And also... I I, I, I don't know. Um, You know, uh, this previous election, 2020, uh, youth turnout was higher than it's ever been. Uh, it was the youth turnout that drove Obama's elections. 
Um, I, I actually think that the idea that young people don't engage in politics is a very cynical way to look at it because when you look at stuff like uh, the Black Lives Matter movement or the Occupy movement, those movements were largely led by young people. Um, when when I would go to protests out here in Oakland, uh, the people with the bullhorns, the people with the signs at the front of the march, and the very first people to resist when the police started attacking us were the young people. So young people engage in politics. The problem is is uh, the, the problem that society sees is that young people don't engage in electoral politics. Um, but I think that that's more that that's more of an indictment of the uh, you know our electoral of the party system. Than it that, is of young people. When you look at politicians yeah. like Bernie Sanders or uh, Alexander, uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, um, these are people uh, with incredible youth followings. Um, I mean, just last night, uh, AOC was playing Among Us on Twitch. You know, she was just playing a video game. Like, can you imagine any other politician being natural and just playing a video game? I couldn't. I, I, I in my lifetime didn't think I would see something like that. And that's because she knows how to speak to young people and go out to find young people where they're at and, instead of expecting young people to come to them. And so that uh, and and that right there, I think, explains why we're, you know, seeing a higher youth turnout now. Um, it's why we see young people. I mean, you look at the um, after the uh, well, what school was it? Was it uh, Stonewall? Um, after one of the school shootings, you know, every single or not every single, but there was a dozen kids from that school. Who then went on this? Oh, movie. yeah, yeah. The uh, um, oh god, the Florida. It's so sad that neither that both of us know which one it was, and neither one of us know. Cause what we have, it's like, well, was it this one? Was it this one? Was it this there's one? There's so many of them. <laughs> yeah, but you know, even it, then, uh, Greta Thurn, uh, Thurnberg is one of the like leading. Uh, activist on climate change and she's what like 14 okay well, um, um not to brag but i do have occasionally one of the most listened to documentary podcasts out there so i feel like obligated to look up which school shooting that was <laughs> fair 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 <laughs> um uh, actually yeah that's fair uh but then uh, you know on that point again um i'm gonna mispronounce her name but uh malala um, the uh, Afghan, the young Afghanistan girl who was sh- uh, Afghan girl who was shot in the head. Um, I know who you're talking about, but I, I don't um, know who you're talking about. So, so I, I I think this idea that young people don't engage in politics is just it, okay. It, it comes for the record. Anything. Okay, wait. For the record, uh, uh, Randy and I are talking about. Or Randy referred to Stoneman Douglas High School in. Uh, where what to say? Um, let me let me look. Parkland, Florida. That's yeah. just for the record. <laughs> and <laughs> you know, we didn't mean that, neither one of us mean to minimize anybody who lost anybody. In, you know, sorry. You know, and, and well, and and you know, and just to balance it out, you know, I've used a lot of left wing examples of young people engaged in politics, but you know, you also had the um, those Covington kids who were protesting like, in favor of Trump. Right. Um, movements like the Proud Boys, uh, they all skewed to the early 20s. That's still pretty young to be out, you know, as, as an activist. Um, the, I, I don't think that, I, I just don't, I just don't know that when I look around, I see young people not engaged. 
especially the Zoomer uh, generation. Um, you go and you look at various uh, actions they took against Trump uh, on uh, TikTok and stuff like that. Like, they're engaged. We just aren't pulling them into a specific part of engagement, and that's that, that's on us. Yeah. Well, and I also think, I mean, part of it, I mean, I also think kind of part of it is, like, there's a there's a group of people that I guess I'm the end of um, that remembers, that actually remembers, you know, bipartisan cooperation, right? Um, and now you don't see that. Ever. Yeah, but I, 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 I think that's true, but I think that's because a lot of people have started asking the question, well, okay, but what were they, uh, what, what was this cooperation happening over? And it was stuff like uh, the 1993 crime bill or uh, cutting food stamps and stuff like that. Like people started realizing that bipartisanship didn't doesn't mean a whole lot when what they're doing yeah. is it, it's harming people, you know. Um, right. And 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 so I think that's why. Like definitely, I would say like there is a large section of the youth. Uh, right now who absolutely have it in their head that they will not compromise with the other side. And I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing right now for this particular moment. I think that you do absolutely have to at some point get back to some type of cooperation. But I think it's also important that uh, people understand that when you're pushing for radical change uh, that you're going to have to butt heads and not everyone's going to agree and that's why we have the you know the the democratic processes that we have you know it, it's oh. a way it, it's a way yeah. for us to have these debates one side win the debate and then it goes through a fair process in order for that you know that that policy win or something to actually become law now let me okay let me let's change gears this is called a lucas this is called a lucas edit uh, <laughs> let's, let's change gears a minute um, if memory serves, I was on uh, Twitter with you, and you had some pretty amazing threads about sort of COVID was around, but people weren't uh, like having school at home or having school over Zoom yet. Um, and also, might maybe you have stories about people who like their schooling experience is different from other people's schooling experience because they are at home. Um, yeah, in those in, in those early days, I got very frustrated with what I what I saw as uh, my school's response to uh, the pandemic. Um, for those you know, for for those who don't know, my school prides itself on being one of the most diverse uh, uh, campuses on the continental United States, um, and yet their response didn't. It, it was a blanket response that they had to have known was going to adversely affect some students. Um, poor students who may not have uh, computers. Um, you know, I, I know I know one person who literally just disappeared from class for two months because the, okay. Starbucks, clo- the Starbucks closed down, and so they had nowhere to get in the Internet. Let's, let's pause, and let me rewind slightly. Yep, go ahead, uh, sorry. Let's... Let's explain, because it just occurred to me, this is forever, ever. So let's explain. Uh, there was a moment where 
And that moment was different for different places. But there was a moment where people started realizing, oh, oh, God, people around other people with COVID, uh, in a COVID world, that's not good. Colleges, okay, go home. Study at home. <laughs> All right? So. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, so the way my school handled it, um, my school actually uh, at first gave everyone, like gave professors the choice to move to uh, distance learning. Um, and luckily, because I am a grad student and all my classes are at night, my professors are very quick to say, whatever, we just won't meet for a couple of weeks until we figure it out. Other people weren't so lucky, though. Um, some people were still having to go to class uh, in the, the day the shutdown was announced. I know people who were in class when they got the news. Um, but they didn't shut down the school entirely. The library stayed open because people have to do research. Uh, and that, and that, that was for the first two weeks. And then they shut that down. But gay students know, waited, like, how am I supposed to do my research if I don't have access to this material, correct? So people very quickly started just, like, throwing their hands up and just not doing their work. Um, like I said, I saw people disappear because they didn't have Internet uh, for two months. Um, it was it was chaotic, and it was unnecessarily harmful to a lot of people, a lot of people who were having mental health you know, uh, struggles through all of this too. Um, it, it was very, it felt very classist. I think is the way I kept phrasing it online. It felt very classist. Like those, uh, those of us students who are working class, uh, who are still struggling to get through school, were kind of forgotten. So why don't we? Okay, because one of the things I wonder is, I wonder if college period paragraph is going to be the same. Um, pre-COVID and post-COVID. So why don't we run through what your pre-COVID um, college experience was to what it is now? Um, oh, well, my, my college experience has actually been fairly smooth. I did two years at my community college, which was the most re- rewarding time in college. It's where it's where I first felt like my brain was getting like turned on and turned like get, getting tuned into wanting to learn. Um, I moved, transferred to university, uh, did, you know, finished my last two years there. It was a, you know, 30 kids in a classroom. You go in, you listen to a lecture, you go home, you write a paper. Um, now, you know, and, and, and that was basically rinse, repeat for the first four years of my college experience. Uh, go, go, uh, go to class, listen to a one or three hour lecture, uh, go to the library, pick up some books to do research, sit in the library, write a paper, go home. Now it's it, it, it's awkward, really. Like my my whole class is in my house, and I'm uncomfortable with that because I live in a tiny home. You know, uh, school feels like I mean I hate to say it, but it feels like it shouldn't be a priority right now. But nobody, but but nobody, like the only people who feel like that are students. And so there's this, like, there's this weird push and pull between the teachers and the students, between the students who were like, look, you got, you're going to have to be a little flexible with some of these deadlines or, you know, maybe you want me to read two books a week, but, I, you know, there are two days a week I wake up and have a panic attack, so I don't know if I'm going to be able to get through that. Um, I think, unfortunately, because the pandemic is going to go on so long, uh, I think we will eventually, because it's getting better now. 
Um, I, I think we will be uh, we will be uh, th- there will be a better mix come like next semester. I think next semester we'll have hit a good sweet spot. But until then, like it, going to school in a pandemic is not fun. I promise you. <laughs> it doesn't sound it. I mean, I, I don't know if I answered that question very well, but it's kind of well, it, okay. it, 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 okay. it's, one of the, it's one of those things that's hard. It's it's almost hard to describe, like how off-putting school is right now. Well, why, okay, why is it off-putting? Um, so it's off-putting for, for me two reasons. Um, one, there's the actual, like, being in class that's awkward. Uh, I'm a very social person, and so I try to, you know, when I'm having conversations, I'm reading social cues a lot, and it's very hard to do that on uh, Zoom. And then also, like, I don't have a space, I don't have an office space or anything. I do most of my writing and stuff on campus. So now the only space I have is in my bedroom, which means I now have to invite, you know, 20 or 30 strangers into my bedroom, which just feels awkward to me. And maybe I'm being uh, soft-skinned about that or something, but it just feels awkward. And then there's the there, there's the actual trying to do the schoolwork part which I don't have access to research materials anymore or very limited research materials because there hasn't been a big push to digitize a whole bunch of stuff yet, although that will probably change post-COVID. Um, it's hard It's hard to be motivated uh, for, you know, to write about, like I just finished a paper on the history of pinball. Do you know how frivolous that feels when the day I turned it in was election day? Yeah. You know, I mean, I, 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 like an election in which there were, you know, a lot of that, that we that could have gone either way. And I don't mean just like Trump or Biden winning. I mean, could have gone from like peaceful transition of power to now we have a military dictatorship. Uh, or like one of one very, of the, one oh, of the things ahead. in my one of the things in my own life that that I noticed for me is I talk to a lot of people all over the country. All over the world, really. And we have conversations about what their experience of the pandemic is. And it runs everywhere from, I don't really, you know, nothing's really that different to, you know, these harrowing tales that are just, you know what I'm saying? Like really, really, really harrowing tales where you're just like, oh my God, I am so fortunate. And, yeah, you know, and, and and I like to think of myself as like a sensitive guy, and so you know when I'm talking about that awkwardness and that that struggle to get up motivation, like if I wake up in the morning and I check the news and I see two interviews from nurses and they're bawling their eyes out and their faces are swollen because of their masks and they're like I haven't seen my family for you know two months. That shit. Sorry, that stuff hits me hard, um, and uh, like you know, and then it takes me a little bit to recover from that. And so I can't just go into writing about something like a uh, pinball or, uh, you know, um, earlier, uh, last uh, earlier in the, the last semester, I wrote a paper on, uh, a satirical paper over if a hot dog was a sandwich. Well, like, sure. That's fun and everything, but man, it's really hard to care about that when the world is, was literally on fire burning around us. You know, I don't know if you remember, but there was, here in California, there was a two, three week period where I we couldn't see the sun because there was so yeah. much smoke in the air. 
talk about the, the I've got somebody on my podcast talk about the fires, uh, Dr. Steve uh, Campbell. But talk about your experience of the California fires. Um, so I, I have lived in California going on nine years now, and each year they get progressively worse. Um, this year was was intense, though. Um, actually, if I remember correctly, and don't please don't quote me on this, I think less like actual people were harmed this year. But man, it was it, it was intense. Um, we would I would go out into my backyard because uh, you know that's where I do some of my writing uh, now that I'm doing working from home, and would have to like wipe everything down because there's just a layer of ash everywhere. And I'm over a hundred miles from the fire, and there's still just a layer of ash covering everything. Um, we had two different kind like I a bunch of us had two different kinds of masks that we had to wear every day. You'd wear you'd, you'd wear the mask to protect from smoke until you got to where people were, and then you'd switch masks and put on the, the COVID mask. It, it's funny yeah. because the, the the mask I used for uh you know to protect against the smoke is my tear gas mask from when I go to protests. <laughs> so, uh, needless to say, the last you know the last decade or so has been a very interesting decade. <laughs> it's uh, well, yeah, and that gets me to I mean. I actually think that we had a we we live or we, yeah both of us did but there, this country had a golden age from ni- 1946 to 2001 and this is kind of one of those moments where we realize we're not in the golden age anymore. Yep, you know, I, I like, totally agree. <laughs> I totally agree. Um, when you look at, uh, I mean, I, I feel like just the several mass protest movements uh, that have been you know that have gone on for sustained periods of time we didn't see that in the 90s you know you saw you saw a couple of things you know you might see the world trade organization protest but it wasn't a mass movement that was an individual protest um i I think that alone speaks to the fact that a lot of people are waking up and realizing hey you know not only are things not being done right but they're very actually simple ways that we could be doing this better and so let's try some of that for a while. And if it doesn't work, we can go back to doing it the bad way. <laughs> one yeah. of the one of the craziest things that I I ran across in my uh, Spanish flu um, podcast was um, I actually read the book that somebody gave George W. Bush. Okay, um, about the Spanish flu. All right, and that book is scary. Okay. It has some really scary parts of it, like really scary. And he read the book, and I believe the direct quote, he was given the book for Christmas, and I believe the direct quote was, he comes into work, and he's like, hey, um, he comes into like the, the Joint Chiefs or whatever, and he's like, hey, uh, knock off whatever, make work, government work, I had you doing before, and create a pandemic team, please. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I mean, well, and there's a very similar story to uh, with Reagan uh, taking like like once he starts leaning into um, nuclear disarmament and stuff like that, like with the salt treaties and all that. Uh, and it was because he watched he watched the movie. I can't. I'm blanking on the name of the movie, but he watched a movie that was like about uh, like a nuclear uh, winter or something like that. Uh, and he was like, uh, "Oh no, yep, let's uh, let's not do that." And you know, I, I can re- I can respect that, 
Like maybe not a whole lot about Bush I like, but I can I can appreciate the fact that he sat down and read a read a book about a pandemic and was like, ah, maybe we should be prepared for that. <laughs> it's the chapter on uh San Francisco was literally terrifying. Oh, I bet. Well, and it gets to what we were talking about earlier about how now we have the internet and now like if somebody like okay, and we have our own crazy stuff that happens, but like you would have people with the Spanish flu that would drop dead in the in the theater line. Like they would be in line for the theater and they would drop dead. And like but then they at first they were like, Why did this person die? Right? But then they kind of figured it out. But like now if that happened you'd have it on Twitter or um you know, like uh what's it, Instagram? <laughs> Things like that. You know, like oh my god. Uh huh. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's so. I yeah. It's, it, 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 it's an interesting. We, we we live in interesting times, and I don't know if that's a good thing. <laughs> but that's a Chinese curse, actually. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I I I think I would prefer to just get to be an academic and stay home and read about Roman history all the time, and not have to go out and right, fight the right, man, uh, so to speak. <laughs> right, ironic papers about hot dogs being sandwiches. Oh, it it it, it was hilarious. Uh, I mean, you follow me on Twitter. You see, it's a it's a debate that I get into uh, frequently. Um, are you in? Over, so you're from Texas, right? Yes. Uh, what part of Texas are you from? Uh, I'm from the Dallas area. Okay. Uh, I, I've I've lived all over Texas, though. So. East, west, south. Yeah, uh, the only place, the only uh, region in Texas I haven't lived is uh, out in the desert, out like West Texas, El Paso, that type, that area. Yeah. So let me ask you, when does Texas stop being Southern? When? Where? Oh, where? Oh, that that yeah. actually is probably a good question. Hmm. <laughs> Oof. Oh man, I, it, that's a hard question to answer. It's a good one though. It's one of my, it, I, I, hands down, one of my favorite questions I've gotten about my life in Texas. Um, I, I definitely what? think, where does it stop being the South? Uh, cause I definitely think the DFW area is still the South. Um, the Southern Texas, Houston, San Antonio, or maybe not San Antonio, but like Houston, uh, Austin, that's still the South. Um, yeah, I'd probably say the border areas around Mexico, um, the out near by like El Paso and stuff, and uh, probably like northern like Amarillo. Amarillo is more like Oklahoma. So, so when you like, say the South, like when we say the South, you and me, what are we talking about? Well, for me, that, I'm, I'm talking about a specific type of culture. Um, right. Well, because I've like, got listeners all over the world that don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm talking about a specific culture. Like, so, for those who don't know, Southern culture is very distinct from the rest of America. Um, and it's not just like the stereotypes, like what you're thinking of when you think of the South, you know, which is racist rednecks and stuff like that, even though redneck culture is a big part of the South. But it's also um, a lot of like, uh, like the black urban areas, like Atlanta, New Orleans, like those, uh, uh, 
places in uh, like Mobile and stuff, these places contribute heavily to the culture of the South. So it's this mix between, and I'm, I don't know. It, 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 it's, it's a it's a very eclectic place. Um, it, yeah, the South is kind of. I mean, it it was kind of new to to prosperity after the Civil War. Yeah, and and then kind of the post war post World War Two uh, boom times kind of came to the South, and I guess when um, air conditioning kind of came in. Um, well, we kind of exploded and my, my hometown, Atlanta, um, and I said Atlanta there. So, you know, I'm really from here. Yeah. 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 Atlanta. I don't say my T's in words. I don't say <laughs> the, the, the internal T's in words. <laughs> somebody said, somebody said, you say Atlanta like an old person. I said, well, <laughs> I, 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 I'll tell you, listeners, what it, it might—it might be kind of hard for me to define what the South is, but I, I can tell you how to know you're in the South. If the first—if the first drink they offer you is sweet iced tea, you're in the South. <laughs> if it's—if it's June or May, and you come outside, and it feels like a hammer hit you, but it was the humidity. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, we, 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 we get that out here too because you know i'm right next to the uh ocean but also i'm at a place where it gets 100 110 degrees out here uh so i thought i when i left texas i had escaped that heat but apparently not <laughs> apparently not huh but um, but anyway yeah so like what i was saying was i was in a meeting right before the pandemic and Apparently, like Atlanta, Georgia, or the metro Atlanta area is one of the fastest growing places yep. in the Americas. Uh huh. So yeah, I bet yeah, you heard uh, me say it on my podcast. <laughs> which is one of the reasons I was trying to draw this, like point out the fact that it's not just like what you're thinking of when you think of the South, which is you know someone in a cowboy hat or something like that. It is. You know, it's these large, uh, you know, black populations contributing to the culture in those areas, too. I mean, perfect example of that is when you listen to, like, uh, popular country music right now. Um, The hip-hop influences, like, right now, um, oh, man, who was it? Um, There's a country musician. Uh, no, the, 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 there was a country a country musician who was like one of the Steve Irwin. No, that's not him. Uh, Steve something or another. I'm forgetting. But anyways, he described modern country music as uh, hip hop for people who don't like black people, and that's because. And and that's because contemporary hip hop. I mean, contemporary country. When you turn onto it, like you're listening to hip-hop with uh, a banjo and stuff like that. Like, it's it, it really is hip-hop music, you know, for a demographic that seems to want to keep black people out of it, which, you know, you brought up uh, Old Town Road. That, that that whole saga is a prime example of this. Well, the thing I, I, I was I thinking was about, the thing I was thinking about with Atlanta was, I mean, Outkast um, is basically the most Atlanta thing ever. Because it's rap, but it's rap influenced by metal uh-huh. and other stuff, which is, you know, Atlanta has always had a metal scene, you know. And for, 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 for the record, for your listeners, that musician I couldn't think of, his name is Steve Earle. 
<laughs> Steve Irwin. Yeah. Okay. It, it, right. It, and the exact quote was, uh, modern country, star, uh, country stars make hip hop for people who are afraid of black people. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so again, that's Steve Earl. That's not, that's not us. That's Steve. Fling the hate mail with Steve Earl, please. <laughs> I can send it my way too. I'm used to it. Uh, don't be careful what you wish for. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Um, yeah, so, um, what do you think, um, like, as far as entertainment, or, I guess, pop culture, during the pandemic, I mean, not just during, but after, do you think, um, do you think theaters are ever going to come back, or come back the same? <laughs> pop culture, so there's been... You know, there's already this shift to, yeah, TV shows and movies are still, um, you know, are, are still watched by tens of millions and stuff like that. But the the shift on, like, who's becoming celebrities and stuff like that is really actually shifting over to places like video game streaming and stuff like that. And I think the pandemic has accelerated that a little bit. Um, so, like, on Switch, where they play video games, the people playing the video games are, like, celebrities? Uh, I mean, well, you look at people like, uh, Pokemon, uh, Pokemon-y, I think is how you pronounce it, uh, Ninja, some of these other streamers who, you know, are making millions of dollars a year just from their contracts, but then also, uh, from endorsements and stuff. And, you know, when, it, when they turn on their streams, there's 200,000 people watching it live. They're watching this person play a video game. Um, this stuff has gotten so popular that again, I, you know, to reiterate, one of the leading progressive American politicians went and played video games with these people last night because they have such a huge following of young people. So I think I, I think that we're probably going to like, all of the all your TV shows and stuff are copying memes that are being created on TikTok, and so I think that that you know where in the '90s TV drove. Uh, TV drove pop culture, and in the early 2000s, it was just the internet as a whole. Now it's specifically social media, and it's these social media outlets where people can create broadcast content to people live, and people eat that stuff up. Well, right. I mean, what was the? There was a statistic I read years ago now where there was actually a day. They were actually pinpointed a day where there was more people watching YouTube in America than there was watching TV. And I, I, I totally believe that. I totally believe it. Um, my wife watches a lot of TV, but I can't remember the last time I turned on it. Oh, yes, I can. The 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 last like TV show I watched was Netflix's uh, uh, Barbarians, I think it's called. Whichever one they just did about uh, the yeah, but Netflix uh, doesn't count. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Netflix, like, does, I, Netflix I, doesn't count. I don't know. I mean, even at this point, I would I would almost put Netflix into the same category as like traditional TV in that it's not the driver of pop culture anymore. It responds to pop culture. Who the, the things that are driving pop culture are your TikTok stars, your influencers, um, and you know, and, and that's for better or worse. Uh, but like one pot, one trend I've noticed coming out of a lot of these people is a trend towards positivity. Um. 
a lot of the people that I play or that I watch play games like Among Us or Minecraft or something like that are super positive, and it's all about like supporting each other. And like, I think that that is, regardless of what you may think about some of these streamers, you know, some of them are problematic and stuff. I think that the positivity coming out of this this type of cultural interaction is ultimately a good thing, and I don't think it's a thing you can get with TV. Like, when we all know we're watching Game of Thrones together, it's like, okay, we all did this stuff together, but so what? When we're all watching a live stream of someone playing Minecraft together, and we're all commenting on them and, you know, asking them, hey, go do this, and they're responding, it builds community. And so, you know, you were talking about the polarization that's happening in our society. There's, there is this polarization, but it's also, you know, we're seeing wide swaths of American society coming together and forming communities around it. And I think that that's ultimately going to be, end up being a positive trend. It's one of the reasons I'm optimistic about the future, even if I am pessimistic about the immediate future. I, I, I'm in the same dichotomy. I mean, broadly speaking, I'm, I'm, I'm pessimistic about, you know, the next few years, but I do think we're going to, you know, we're going to get better. I mean, you've studied American history. I've studied American history. Americans get through stuff. You know, we get through stuff. We do. Well, well, I, I think it's, I, I think one of the ways that, that's how you measure the health of a society is the resiliency that that society uh, exhibits when you know they're going through a socio-economic uh, crisis or something like that. Um, and you know, when you look at you know. I'm, to bring it back to Rome just real quick, when you look at the Roman Empire, um, after the various disasters and stuff it, uh, it faces, you know, there's less and less resiliency. So I'm sure you know a little bit about Roman history. After the Battle of, uh, of Cannae, their Air Canny, however, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, the Romans were able to field another army that's just as big as the one that's wiped out. So they still have plenty of resiliency. But as the centuries go on, you know, they lose 30,000 people at Adrianople, and now they can't replace those soldiers. And so us as Americans, we have to ensure that we keep building enough contingencies into our society that we can respond to these crises in, way, you know, in ways that don't just help a few and don't lead towards the fragmentation of our society. Because I'm with you on that. I think when America falls, it'll break into five or six different uh, polities. Yeah, I mean, and I don't know. I don't even know if fall is the right word. I mean, it might just sort of, uh, you know, change. Well, well and, I, yeah, and I think, and I think, even in that situation, we will there will still be something on the map labeled the United States of America, but it's going to be on the East Coast, and it's going to be four states, you know, or something like that. Or like it'll be in the Midwest, and uh, I don't know. Well, that's I mean the podcaster uh, Patrick Wyman, um, yeah. he brings up in in his History of Rome series. There's a a story that he tells about a woman that he invents who lives in a town somewhere, and he talks about like her life and how when she was a kid they were using money. And for the record, they're she, she, for the record, she lived in, uh, I think it was London or another major town in Britain. But I, I remember the episode you're talking about. Yeah. And, like, when she lived in, I think it was York, or what? now that you're saying it, like, they were using money. And when she's older, they're trading. And that's, 
you know, that's yep. an example. Yeah. I mean, just a. Go ahead. Well, I just remember in the pandemic now, because, you know, I get our food uh, delivered. We get our food delivered and stuff because um, we have health issues and all kind of stuff. So COVID and health issues, you know. But, yeah. um, uh, you know, these like Amazon gets really opinionated about, well, we'll sell you this, but not that, <laughs> you know? Yep. Like, you know, it's one of those. And every time I do this, I'm, I can hear Patrick Wyman in my head. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the little thing. How does he say it? It's the little banalities that, that add up to the civilization collapsing. Or something. Yes. <laughs> yes. You know, uh, Pat, for, 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 for the record, Patrick Wyman's one of my influences, one of the reasons why I'm pursuing a degree in public history, even though I don't think that's what his degree is, but I like what he does, and he does it very well. Um, one of the things – To go listen to all of his podcasts. Yeah, oh, oh cosine, yes, for real. Uh, one of the things I love about our modern world is that I can go for a walk, and I can listen to this world-renowned expert on – history just as i'm walking and 10 years ago that would have been me going to ucla <laughs> paying out-of-state tuition <laughs> well you know that, that that's that's kind of you know it's what i was talking about uh you know at the beginning uh what got me into history you know we now we, we we have so many opportunities to bring stories that people have never heard to the to people you know um you look at podcasts like uh, Jay, uh, Jamie Jeffers, the British History Podcast, where he yeah. basically rushed through the Roman period so he could get to the period between uh, the 5th century and 1066 to talk about Alfred and those people. Um, and, you know, it's taken him years to get through it. Or even uh, the History of the 20th Century Podcast with Mark Painter. Uh, he is telling stories that we all know. You know what I mean? Like, World War One, World War Two, but then he's also telling these stories, uh, you know, about ballet dancers and how they in, were influential in culture and like there's so there's so much to tell people, and I think podcasts especially prove that people want to hear these stories. So I think that well, that's what that's where right. I feel needs to focus on getting these stories out there, like public history. Most of my education has been focused on museums and stuff, but it shouldn't be. You know, One I should thing, be learning how to write fiction as a graduate student in a history program so I can write historical fiction in the same way that Patrick Wyman creates his composite characters, you know? Well, one of the things that, like, um, one of the things, honestly, that I just think is amazing is I had a surgery, and I was in my bed, and I was just, Listen, what else can I do with this gadget called a smartphone? And so I started, I went into the podcast app and, and found, um, like Joe Rogan. And as problematic as, as he can be, he introduced me to Dan Carlin. <laughs> and he said it best with, about Dan Carlin. Dan Carlin is probably one of the most important historians of, of our time, even though he's not really a historian. Just because he's such an awesome storyteller. Yeah, I mean, Joe Rogan, he's problematic, but he does definitely, like, uh, Joe Rogan reminds me a lot of Playboy the magazine, where 
there's a lot of problematicness about it, but you do get good <laughs> bits of information out of it. You know, Ray, um, Ray you know, Bradbury wrote for wrote for. Uh, so did yeah. Hunter S. Thompson. Right. You know, yeah. um, like like some of the most important political leaders of the 20th century appeared. You know, did uh, interviews for Playboy. Does, that doesn't make Playboy any less problematic, but it does does make sense that people would turn, you know, would go there to find certain types of information. Well, think about this. I mean, who doesn't who doesn't love long walks on the beach? Think about this though. <laughs> like back when it was people were still saying COVID was a hoax, even though a lot of people still say that, but there was a point where people were really saying it. He went out of his way to find a virologist and interview him on the podcast. And that probably saved lives. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, <laughs> Joe Rogan had Bernie on, you know, and that probably that probably convinced some of his uh, people who were kind of waffling, but you know, leaning towards the far right, probably convinced them to come the other direction. Because, like, to, if, if we're being entirely honest, some of the same influences that pull people to the far right are what pe- pulls people to the far left, and. Like, you know, people often make fun of the term economic anxiety, and I get where they're coming from, but economic stressors are 100% influential in what pushes people towards fascism, you know? Uh, so, well, also, economic have, anxiety makes, turns people into socialists, too, you know? Uh, well, let's have somebody not me explain to my listeners what fascism is. Um... <laughs> That, oh man, you're gonna put me on the spot with a good definition. Uh, Fascism—it's it, a far-right ideology that's rooted in nationalism. Uh, it's rooted in uh, looking backwards, uh, you know, make America great again—that type of stuff. I'm not saying Trump's a fascist. I'll leave that up to your listeners to decide. But it's a—it's uh, mm, a ideology that looks to create in and out groups so as to encourage people to centralize power in the in group. Um, and that's a terrible, terrible definition, but it, it's one of those things where fascism itself is hard to define because it's not based on like a certain po- like uh, economic ideology. Uh, there is an economic situation that arises out of it, this merger, uh, this heavy influence between uh, merger between the state and corporations and that type of stuff. But it's not driven by any type of economic ideology. It's not driven by stuff like uh, cut taxes or, you know, uh, let's pay out more in social welfare, anything like that. It's not really driven by a political ideology either. Um, a lot of the people who supported Hitler didn't support Hitler because of the anti-Semitism or because uh, they supported him because he was going to make the in-group strong again, you know, and he was going to do that by pointing to the out-group and saying it's their fault. And so fascism kind of, like, again, it's it's kind of like vulgarity. Like, you don't really, or you don't really know what it is until you know what it is, right? Uh, <laughs> it, it, right. It, it, it's... It's a varied thing. It looks different even in Mussolini's Italy and uh, Hitler's Germany, despite the fact that they were allies. It looks very different. You know, anti-Semitism wasn't really a – it was present in Italy, but it didn't really become 
an important influence in Mussolini's uh, ideology until the alliance with Hitler kind of, and Hitler pressured him into it, you know, or he did it to please Hitler. Um, so it's it, it's hard to define, um, but there's you know the 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 important distinction is the in versus the out group, and trying to restore this lost mythical past that probably never existed. Or it might have existed, but it existed differently than yes. they're saying. I mean, yeah, or, or, or only or but... only existed for a certain group of people. Right, and yeah. maybe not the entire way they're thinking. Yeah, we told. Uh, a, sure. a, a perfect example is you know American fascists like to point to like the fifties as a time where they would like to return to. Well, okay, but you know we still had segregation. You know, like the, right. American society wasn't good for everyone, even though a whole lot of white people were able to, you know, work one one person work and you get a four bedroom house and have three kids and all that, two cars and all that. It didn't exist for everyone, and so that that's that's the in versus out group dynamic there. Right, and uh, I mean also like I read something recently where like people are um, like people now are smarter than they were 60 years ago. Like, they know more. Yes. Like, you know. Not not, not just know more, but I, I think there's probably, you know, there's been this shift, especially, you know, uh, once women are welcomed into, like, academia, and I understand that women still aren't really welcome in academia, but I'm just talking, like, legally. Um, more people are out searching for information now, I think, than probably ever before. Yeah. And you're saying women aren't welcomed in academia, like, uh, as far as, uh, why? Why, why do you say um, that? Um, academia is, is very hostile to women. Um, and, and I've noticed it even in my classes, and it's, it's something that I think people are subconsciously do. But just like even in my own experience, um, I, I, I've seen, uh, women professors of mine who are, who were like, no, I want, with like for example, I have a professor of mine who uh, the, uh she studies Mexico, and her whole career people were trying to tell her, well, you need to write about like women in colonial Mexico, and she's like, well, I don't want to. I want to write about like the environment and uh, military history and stuff like that. And so she's pushed into uh, you know women get pushed into teaching about certain things. Um, then there's you know there's just the general. Uh, that you still have a whole lot of old uh, men who are professors and the gatekeepers of academia, and they might not think women belong. And it's just it's 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 hostile to women in a way that it's not hostile to me. Academia, even with my working class background, is pretty much looked at me, you know, welcomed me with open arms, and I get to do whatever I want. You know, I thought you were going to talk about the like the I think one of my professors called it the pregnancy clause. That's what I thought yeah. you were going to bring Well, up. I mean, there, there, there's I, – I, I could go into a lot of stuff, you know. A tenure um, clock, that's what it's really called is the tenure clock. And right. women, you have to – they pause it or whatever. Can't, can't, we can't, can't have kids for three years or something like that. Um, but then but then also, you know, there's sexual harassment in the workplace. There's, you know, there, right. there, there's, all, there, there's all of the normal ways that our society is uh, – uh, harmful to women on top of just pure gatekeeping and stuff as well. Um, 
Yeah. But it, you know, and it's not just it's not just prof- like it's not just professors and stuff like that either. It's uh, authors. It's you know I. I I watch in my classes that, like, and again, I think this is a subconscious thing that happens, but people are much, much more critical of a woman's writing style than they are of men, um, especially if that woman is writing about, you know, women's history in a certain period or something like that. Men tend to crucify those books, and I think it, you know, I think it's, a, again, it's a subconscious thing they're doing. I don't think these people are setting out to be like, no, uh, this woman is stupid and I hate women. I just think it's a way that we've been conditioned to act towards women and, you know, this isn't their place. They belong in the kitchen, barefooted, pregnant. Like, Well, and how much of that, honestly, is because uh, when I was writing reviews for books, like, you had to find things to, to nitpick. And some books I read, some books I literally remember reading thinking, wow, I learned so much from this book. This is amazing. What's wrong? Uh, nothing. <laughs> Find something. I, 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 I do totally get, I, I do get that. Um, I do think that we, as a whole, tend to want to crucify, tend to want to be critical of stuff. And we almost, especially as book reviewers, Unless this book is, you know, the once in a generation, this is the best book for the last 40 years on this subject. We want to be like, well, it's not the best book over the last 40 years. Therefore, it's not good at all. Um, you know, everything, everything <laughs> has to be either the, the, the best or it's shit, uh, crap. Right. Well, I'm, I'm not, my podcast is not safe for work, so you can say. Oh, okay. All right. You know, Sorry. I, I, you, I, that's, I mean, why, that's why I let something slip that I've been trying. No, not. no, no. I, I just thought I'd mention that. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you're not, by the way, you're not the reason my podcast is not safe for work. Just saying. <laughs> I'm assuming it's you then. <laughs> no. It's it's interesting when you get into the pandemic and you really start talking oh, to people. Yeah. Like, yeah. That you makes really sense. talk, you talk to some people in some raw moments. Yeah. And yeah. I, and I thought, you know what? No, this is a fascinating history document. I'm not going to do anything to it. I'm going to change my rating, and I'm going to go with it. Yeah, and I don't, and I don't think you probably don't lose a whole lot by being, by labeling it not safe for work. Honestly, like you I don't gain, think all, you actually gain. Yeah, I don't think you, I, I I don't think there's a whole lot of people out there who are like, oh nope, this podcast is not safe for work. I'm not going to listen to it. They just won't listen to it at work. Well, or with kids. And I actually, yeah. there's another podcast I had where I was like, hey, um, in the front, I was like, hey, if you got kids or whatever, if you're at work, uh, you might not want to listen to them, this around them. <laughs> but, yeah. you know. Um, anyway. Yeah. Well, Randy, it's been, we've been at it a while. Uh, yeah, um, it's been over an hour now. Wow. Is there anything you want to tell the internet? Um, just be nice to each other, you know? We're all going through really, really tough times right now, so, you know, we all have to have each other's back. So just remember that. Try to spread positivity. Like, tell someone t- tell someone that they're amazing today, please. Yeah. Awesome. Let me, um, let me unhook the, uh, recording. I'll be right back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>